Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. I appreciated, Chris, just the opportunity to sit through a 40-minute segment. I don't think I've done that in a while, so appreciate know what it's like on your side of, of the seats. You did it better than I would have done, Chris, though. One thing you neglected to say, you didn't even mention it. We were on a retreat this week. We were, we were getting buddy-buddy as elders, and we were having actually a great time praying uh, in the Word together. I think one of the times um, that I enjoyed most during that sort of period of us uh, being away for, I don't know, 28, 29 hours or so together, uh, was we took a chance to just reflect on what God's been doing among us as a, a people. And I, I think one of the things that stood out to me as one of the most encouraging things that, that God's been doing in us as a people is just like the, the, the women up here were, were mentioning that God has continued to speak to us as his people through his word. And he's been doing that all over the place, all over throughout our body, in, in maybe for a time when we're, we're not maybe as large as we once were, but he's doing this maybe more consistent than ever. In home groups, one-on-ones, men's, women's Bible studies, in our Propel, um, both senior and junior high, and of course what we get to continue doing even in a time like this morning. As we pick up right now, even in our series on these books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and continue in it, the series that we've been calling Rebuild. Looking in at how God, at this particular point, at this particular time in his people's history, went about the business of reviving hearts and restoring life. And and looking through that at how he continues to do that work, Today, because let's face it, what he did back then when he he brought his people back from exile in a foreign land, when he redeemed them by his grace, led them by his word and established them for the praise of his name, it's not so different from the story that we tell today, the story that he's working among us, that God's done it again and done it for good and has done it for us in the person of Jesus, right? But this is it. This is the story replayed. God has a knack for for setting up history in a way so that when when we get to Jesus, we see it better, what he's done. And that's really what we're doing even as we look back at this particular time, at this particular point in his people's history, looking at what he's done in the past to understand better what God did in his son and what God's promised to do when in the future he returns. And to understand then what we're to do in the meantime, which is what we're going to continue doing today as we pick up in Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12 and consider what it looks like when God rebuilds community. Something he's been rebuilding, but what does it look like in the end when he rebuilds community? And if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there, First uh, and Second Kings, First and Second uh, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, again to Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12, which we're going to look at um, as we go. It's one of those weeks. We're not actually going to read something right now. We're going to look at it as we go. But before we dive in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are the people of your possession. And therefore, we want to live 
as you want us to live, to reflect in who we are, who you want us to be. And if we don't want it right now, we ought to. So I'm going to pray nonetheless as individuals, as a, a body of believers, and as those who belong together to that broader body of your son, Jesus Christ, that we ask today that you would make us ever more into that. Your people redeemed for your praise to live in purity and holiness before you, which we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every city has a flavor, right? Do you know this from your own experience, whether that's the city you grew up in or the city you live in, unless you live in Sycamore and grew up here and were born here? Do you know this? Every city has a flavor, and that becomes especially evident after you've traveled a bit and gotten to see that, that no two cities are really alike. No two cities are exactly alike, from the smells and the sounds, from what they celebrate to what they seem to value, and everything in between, that every city has its own flavor. So, for instance, let's just take Sycamore. What is Sycamore about? What would you say? Pumpkin Fest. It's about Pumpkin Fest. It's about Mr. Pumpkin. We even put a statue of Mr. Pumpkin on one of our main drags, right? It is about Pumpkin Fest. And you can't really escape that even after the fact. We're now waiting for next year for Pumpkin Fest to come back and make Sycamore significant again. Sycamore is about pumpkins and Mr. Pumpkin and Pumpkin Fest. What about Chicago. What is Chicago about? Diversity. diversity. It's about, sure, diversity. What else? About maybe what would you throw out? Deep dish pizza? Chicago dogs? It's not, uh, it's not so freshwater beach, maybe? Or what, what else would you put in there? It's about the Cubs? Definitely not about the White Sox. Where's Adam? Did he leave? It doesn't have the Blackhawks. It's about the Blackhawks. It, well, it's sports. It's got its sports. What about neighborhoods? It was something that struck me. I came from a different city coming here. It's about neighborhoods, 77 neighborhoods, and one city that is striped by all of them and united by the L train, right? This is what Chicago is about. It's, it's unique. What about New York? Broadway, it's, about, it's called the cultural capital of the world. Broadway, Times Square, it's where you can grab a real slice of pizza, a real hot dog, right? This is, these, are, these are debatable issues, but what can you do? It's known, what, what else? It's known for its skyline, right? Worldwide, known for its skyline, the buildings that once were there, the buildings now that have been bought by, built back up, the stock exchange, it's where young people go to either lose their soul or to find it, right? The center of the world, actually. And I could go through a list after that of all the cities that even I've known 
personally, um, I could go through from, from Amsterdam with the canals, the, the, the cheese wheels, the bike wheels, the wind wheels at, in Amsterdam. I, we could talk about Aberdeen, the city that Catherine and I lived in for, for three years in Scotland with its granite buildings and its gray skies and its gray people. I hope they don't listen to that. They are, though. They're the nicest people underneath. But really, when you show up, everybody's gray. You could go through the cities of the world, and I, I, at this point, it's quite a list, right? But no two cities are the same. Every city has its own unique, distinct flavor, which is no different when it comes to the city of God. No different when it comes to the city of God, a picture of which we're given in Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12. It's really the climax of this book in Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12 of what the city of God, the community of God's people, we're looking at that today, what does it look like uh, when God rebuilds community, what the community of God's people rebuilt and repopulated is all about. Picture is, which is not the whole Because at this point in his people's history, God hasn't finished the work. But a picture that nonetheless points beyond itself to the city that we're citizens of today. And the city, as it shall be known when it comes down from heaven as a bride at the end of the age. And from this portrait we can see that it is a city of people a city of praise, and a city of purity. That At least these three characteristics stick out from this portrait, that the city of God is a, a city of people, a city of praise, and a city of purity, which is what we're going to look at today, these three characteristics of the city of God, beginning with the fact that it is a city of people. So first, that it is a city of people. And that may seem kind of like a soft pitch softball, right? Aren't all cities cities of people? But remember the description of Jerusalem back in chapter 7, when the work on the wall had been completed, and yet the city was described as what? Wide and large, even though the people within it were few. Cities in our day and age are a little more defined by their people, aren't they? More than that, right? You you don't usually think of a city as wide and large, though the people within it were few. Typically, we think of cities as having more people than towns, towns more people than villages. But actually, even today, that's not technically how it works. At least in the U.S., you, you define a city by its government as a legally incorporated entity, one that has been delegated certain powers by the state, which is why in a place like Hobart Bay, Alaska, or Buford, Wyoming, or Bonanza, Utah, you can stumble across cities with only a single resident. Like, Manawi, Nebraska, as another example, where a woman by the name of Elsie Ayler has been the city's only occupant since the passing of her husband in 2004. 
And she serves as city mayor, treasurer, librarian, and clerk while working 12 hours a day, six days a week at a local tavern that she owns, which you may wonder how it on earth stays in business. But the point is, Elsie keeps the lights on all by herself, paying her $500 a year in taxes and keeps the water running. And you can imagine a similar situation when you think of Jerusalem. When Nehemiah had finished the work on its walls, a city that despite the rebuilding of its infrastructure was still just a shell of its former self. Like Detroit, if you need another modern day example, a comparison, a city that at one point was the fourth largest metro area in the country, but a city that's been in decline for nearly 60 years. America's largest ghost town with a population today barely a third of what it once was. And you would notice that driving into town just like you would have noticed it driving into Jerusalem. That despite the renewal efforts without the people, it wasn't what it once was. Wasn't, in this case, what it was meant to be. Yet this ain't just any old city, right? It ain't just any old Detroit or Manawi, Nebraska. This is the city of God. And the city of God's king. The, the city on the hill meant to be filled with God's people. So after God's city has been rebuilt and God's people have been renewed under the preaching of God's word and have committed themselves to the furtherance of God's work, the focus now in chapter 11 turns to Jerusalem's repopulation, to bringing in the people. And again, you can turn there if you have a Bible and look with me at verses 1 and 2 where it says this, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, sort of by default, it was part of the job description. But it says, the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to likewise live in Jerusalem, the holy city. One out of ten. While nine out of ten remained in the other towns, and the people, verse 2, blessed all the men, all the people, that is, who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Why? Well, because despite its rebuilding, this was going to be hard work. Yes, with benefits, but with a delayed gratification. Because they're not moving to the city because it had the best restaurants, because it had all the hippest joints to hang out in. They're not moving to the city because of the, the chance it offered to, to climb the corporate ladder. At this point, there's none of that. No, they're moving in because of what the city represented. And though these individuals were chosen by lot, really chosen not by the luck of the dice, but by the God of the dice, there was still this sense that there was a lot of hard work ahead. And so the people bless those who'd been chosen by lot, but likewise willingly offer to live in the city. One out of ten, sort of like a tithe of the people. Blessed because, again, this was the city where not only they were going to move in, but where God was going to move in. 
where not only the, the rest of God's people, but the rest of God's world would get to meet God. Before that altar, at that temple, in that city. And the significance of this sacrifice, and especially of what these people were sacrificing for, is why we find in the rest of chapter 11 and even into chapter 12, the records of those who made it, who moved in, and even in many cases of their descendants after them, lists of their descendants after them, especially if you read through these lists of the priests and of the Levites and those related to the work of the temple whose whole lives, right, not by choice of their own, but by lot in a sense, or by, by just being Levites, right, that their whole lives had been decided for them, but they willingly gave themselves over to God's work because they prioritized the work of God's house over their own. Big deal, though, right? Living in a foreign land for your entire life finally able to move back to the homeland. You're dreaming of where you're going to put down roots, where the crops you're going to bring up, the, the fruit of the land you're going to bring forth. But giving it up, giving up the dream of what their home would be to be a part of establishing God's home, which is something, right? Because we spend a lot of time thinking about our house and our home, and, and where we're going to live, and what it's going to look like, and smell like, and feel like. But the ones remembered in the world's most important history book, in God's history book, are not those who spent their lives worrying about their homes as much as they're given themselves, they've given themselves to the work of building God's home. Which is why even if you're not Chipper Joanna Gaines. You've still got a chance to be part of a, a story bigger than yourself. This is what it means to be part of the people of God, to be remembered as part of the people of God, to populate the city of God because you're more concerned with God's work, God's home, than your own. These lists, you could read through them all the way through chapter 12, verse 26, of, of real people with, with real lives, real struggles, real heartaches, real disappointments, but who nonetheless really gave themselves to the work of God's house. A lot of the names we've already even become familiar with in these books. Then there's a lot of names that we don't know anywhere else besides this. But that's a testament, right? Both to the, the faithfulness of these individuals and to the faithfulness of of God, raising up, rebuilding a community for himself. And you could read through them on your own, but I want to consider second, not just that God's city was meant to be a city of people, but that it was meant to be a city of praise, that it's a city of praise. And you get a taste for this even toward the end of those lists, where in verse 24 of chapter 12, you read of certain chiefs of the Levites standing opposite each other on a regular basis. This is just describing a regular practice to do what? To praise and give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. 
Because this is what they were there for. From the time of David, 500 years before this, this is what they were there for, to give praise to their God, to make this a city of praise. But I want to pick up in verse 27 where we read about the particular praise that was heard at the dedication of the wall. As it says, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, Ezra and Nehemiah, those are the guys mentioned in the verse before, sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem. Even those who had settled around Jerusalem because God really provided above and beyond. So even some settling around, they bring them in to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, it says, and with singing, with cymbals and harps, and liars. Why? Because the finishing of the wall, if you remember, was evidence of God's work among them. Just as Nehemiah had said in chapter 6 that even their enemies had perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of their God. Well, even more so now that God had filled those walls with God's people. So they gather the, the, the singers in verse 28 and 29. They purify themselves and the people and the wall in verse 30. And then they proceed up onto the wall in verse 31. The leaders of the people and, and two great choirs, it says, to give thanks. Which must have been a sweet moment, right? It must have been a sweet moment if you remember the taunts of someone like Tobiah the Ammonite. He's going to come back into the story next week. Tobiah the Ammonite, who, who when they were still building that wall, had said, even if a fox goes up, the wall will break down. Well, some fox, right? Because now it's literally hundreds ascending that wall to offer praise to their God. You could like picture them stomping just extra hard, right? So that this echoes throughout the land. Because the lesson is, God always gets the last laugh. God always gets the last laugh. And God always gets the praise. And if we were to trace the routes of these two great choirs, you'd actually see them separate from where they begin as they march one to the north, one to the south until they circumnavigate the entire city. In verse 40, both choirs of these of those who give thanks, stood in the house of God. Must have been really something for Nehemiah because he took this journey before. If you remember the night journey he took on the, on the day, the, the evening of his return. When no one else knew where he was. He was walking the, the rubble of this wall. And yet now it's everybody. And you can imagine them passing the places that they participated in. They were the ones who built this thing, and God was the one who worked through them to do it. Walking the wall, but ending where? In the house of God. Which is not a bad place to end, right? Because the walls really aren't what they're celebrating. Nor is it that God filled those walls with his people. No, what they're celebrating is God the one true and living God who had not given up on them, but rather had redeemed them, brought them back 
made them his own when he could have just buried them. And let's not forget that, our, that ourselves, right? That the gifts in life are meant to elevate the giver. And when he withholds gifts, as he oftentimes does, sometimes it's because we've elevated the gift so high that we've lost sight of the giver. And even life's most precious gifts, grace in our lives or bringing us back to himself or bringing one of our loved ones back. Even these, it's not really about us, but about magnifying the one we were brought back to. And don't miss the climax of it all in verse 43, that it's meant to crescendo in joy. Look at it. Look at verse 43. It says, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Like a, a Bruce Springsteen concert. Not like we usually do church, right? But like a Bruce Springsteen concert where both the one leading from up front and those swept up in it from their seats have just lost themselves in the fact that, that, that what they're doing isn't really about them but about what they're singing. And here, the, the one they're singing about. And I'm not suggesting that it's supposed to be that way always or, or, or always the same, but if we're never so swept away by God and things of God and what God has done, especially this side of history, not the side that the Israelites are on, but this side of history, this side of the, the cross of Jesus, you gotta wonder at least just a little bit, whether we really know God at all. Because surely the, the testimony of what, what God has done for his people, now even more so than ever before, dwelling among us and, and through the gift of his spirit dwelling in us, surely that testimony after we've, we've puzzled it out and, and become a witness to those things ourselves, surely even, even the joy and great joy and rejoicing that was heard far away in the days of Nehemiah, surely this ought to pale in comparison to the joy God's people have in the days of the new covenant. Especially since it's God himself, like verse 43 says, that makes his people rejoice with that great joy. Like God forbid we face the same indictment another church faced after installing motion-activated lights and in their sanctuary, and according to one article, they were so still during the service that the lights went off they didn't know what to do. They just continued worshiping in the dark until the benediction. And when they stood up, the lights finally came back on. God forbid that becomes the indictment against our church. That we're so stoic about these things, so reserved. Shouldn't there be some, something coming out of us that we can't stop? because of what Jesus has done 
on our behalf. Joy, joy, and, and great joy, which echoes out and attracts attention in a world where, where true joy is so hard to find. But in the city of God, it's a, a city of people and it's a, a city of, of joy-filled praise. As much as, third, it's a city of purity. Which makes sense given the fact that Jerusalem has already been identified a couple times in chapter 11 as the holy city. And before the, the processional that we already read about the purification, right, of the priests and the Levites and the people and the wall, right? They're concerned about purity. But notice in verse 44 how it says, on that day, Men were appointed over the storerooms, the, the contributions, the first fruits, and, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. They're the joy of the people causing them to set apart these things required by the law. And it says, they, the priests and the Levites, then performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. So that it becomes evident that joy doesn't stop with joy. That it's not meant to stop because joy alone is not enough. Because joy, like faith, without works, is dead. That joy is meant to be worked out. That true faith leads to faithfulness, just like true joy and true praise leads, in this case, to purity. And caring about purity and the practices that lead to purity essentially to caring about what God cares about rather than caring first and foremost about something else. And let me just draw your attention to how institutional this feels. This is important in our day and age. Look at how institutional this feels. The storerooms and the contributions and the first fruits and the tithes. Setting people over that to administrate it. Some of us are those administrative types. We like these types of passages. Ooh, Some of us aren't. But don't kick back at this. This is the way it was done, right? Just like joy was bubbling out over people. It couldn't be stopped. Look, but they administrated. Also, they set people over that, providing for those specifically appointed to lead the people in their continued praise of God. It's so institutional, which isn't really popular today, is it? And yet, isn't this part of God's grace as well? Isn't this how God himself set it up? He's the one that put the institutions in place. Isn't this part of his grace as well? That yes, the sacrificial system would find its fulfillment in the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. But with that, when the, the joy begins to fade, not that it should, but recognizing that it does, that God in his wisdom has put in place those structures to continually bring us back 
Even this side of the cross with the weekly gathering of his people for worship. It's so institutional. Can't we just meet up whenever we want? Well, you can, but don't give this up. It's so institutional, though, with the, the local body that you've committed to and that's committed to you. Is that, isn't that so institutional? It feels so institutional. But this is set up by Jesus himself and those who followed him closest with the godly leadership of a church like that, tasked with shepherding his people, even when, dare I say, they don't want to be shepherded. I tell you what, like, and I'm, I'm not speaking to you on that. I'm speaking as one of you. I, this elders retreat, I feel like I was apologizing the whole, the whole time for, for my own darkness that's set in and is there, crouching at the door, right? Thank God for godly leaders who, who have taken on the responsibility of, of bearing that weight before God himself. But it's so institutional. The regular remembrances of baptisms and baptisms as an entrance point into that covenant community. The Lord's Supper as a, a meal of covenant renewal it's just so institutional with the disciplines of prayer and bible study holding each other accountable out of love for the sheep but also love for the shepherd because these are the graces that god put in place so that when the joy fades these are what brings us back it's not a bad thing. This isn't putting us in prison. This is putting us exactly where we need to be, in the middle of His grace. Why? Because we ought to care about purity as much as God cares about it. And those practices that purify us, the graces that, yes, are, are God-given, God-driven, but that are nonetheless given to us to do. That intentionally continues, even if you look at this, though, it, it, it continues through the end of chapter 12. I want to draw your attention, though, it, it continues even into chapter 13, where notice, with regard to, 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 the, to the latter, chapter 13, that care for purity is spurred on by what? The reading and the hearing of God's word, just like it should be, right? Because God's the one that's doing this. He's driving this forward spurred on by the hearing, the reading and the hearing of God's word, just like it should be, but hearing the people also devote themselves once again to the doing. And in this case, verse three, to the separating of themselves from the foreigners among them. And when it says foreigners here, it's using this definition it's already set up earlier in the, the book, that this isn't about race. This isn't about red or yellow, black or white. This is about this is a, a religious thing. This is a, this is a who you're following and whether you, these people are running after God or running away from him. If foreigners are those, just like the Gentiles, right, is a tagline. That it, it, it's not about those who have come to the true and living God. It's about those who refuse to. They separate themselves from these people. Why? Because it is a threat 
to the purity of God's people. And when we mingle without distinction, it undoes the very story that they need to be a part of. It's not a race thing, it's a religion thing. Why? Because not only is this a city, a a, a community of people, God's people, and a community of praise, joy-filled praise, but it's a community of purity. Because this is the city God was in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah in the process of rebuilding. And a city, he, he built around once and for all the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And, and a city that we will one day inhabit when Jesus returns. A city that we are citizens of, according to Paul and the author of Hebrews and, and Peter and I would argue James goes this far, citizens of even today. We could trace out God's plans to, to build this city from the earliest chapters of Genesis, even before the fall, through right to the, the end of the story of redemption. But, but let us, for our purposes today, I just want to pick up on that that other side of history with this vision of that holy city that was given to the Apostle John. This vision of what one day will be. It's found in that book of Revelation, that sort of strange book that caps the canon with this magnificent picture that if you ever get stuck in the middle of Revelation, you hopefully you make it to the end, right? Because it's this picture. And let me just read a little bit of this picture just to show you this is the consistent plan of God. It's found in Revelation chapter 21, where John says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. What does he say? He says, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Because at that time, there's not going to be a distinction between the city and the people that inhabit it. As a bride adorned for her husband, a city of people. And John is, is told in that city, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And John is told that into that city will the nations bring their glory. City of praise. Later on, he's, he's told that the, in that city, the servants of the Lamb will worship him. A city of praise that it's defined by this you can't get away from it it has to be it's meant to be and god will settle for nothing less but into that city right john further says nothing detestable or false will ever enter why because in the end it's also a city of purity purified by the blood of the lamb for the glory of god 
and what else would do? Because the lack of it, the impurity, is what had gotten them kicked out in the first place. It's what gets all of us kicked out. And so coming back in, seeing the the purification, the blood-bought purification of the cross. How could we want to be a people of anything less? Let me just ask you, though, before we leave, three questions related to that. First, what's getting in the way? What's getting in the way? What's getting in the way of your being part of building up the city of God? Of being a part of that? Being the the, the one in ten who, who then gives themselves willingly to the cause? What's distracting you from it? Whether growing yourself or growing others. Because the people this city is made up of, at least in this passage, are those who were willing to drop their own pursuits and to take up the purposes of God. So what's getting in the way? Second, what's coming out of your mouth? Or what's not coming out of your mouth? Because as citizens of this city of God who've been, who've been brought out of exile and back into relationship with God, who had, who, a God who had just as much right to, to bulldoze history and start over without us, as those who, who, who rather have, have been invited in, you'd expect something to at least slip out every once in a while. Once in a while that gives that away. Yet I find for myself that I'm closed-mouthed tight-lipped, tongue-tied, and bent on avoiding those interactions by any means necessary. What is wrong with the picture? What's wrong with me? Because in Nehemiah's day, they couldn't hold it in. Because it says God made them rejoice. And I I just think one of the places that we can evaluate best the state of our hearts is the overflow of our mouths. As we pray that God would pry open our lips to proclaim to each other and to proclaim to this listening world the fame of his name. What's coming out of your mouth? I know what's not coming out of mine. So again, what's getting in the way? What's coming out of your mouth? And then what's reflected in your life? What's reflected in your life? By which I mean, where would somebody who doesn't know you from Jack, where would they say, based on your life, your citizenship lies? Because while we're waiting for God's kingdom come, we're told that our citizenship is still there. That we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. But if we're citizens of that city to come, we're called to be living like citizens of it now. When life doesn't look like it, we either got to circle 
around and ask whether we really are citizens of that city or ask why we don't seem to care as much as God's people cared in the past about the graces that God has, has put in place himself to bring us back, to call that purity out of us. The graces of walking with one another, of, of, of reading and digging into the word together, of, of caring enough when somebody comes to us and, and says, listen, this piece of life seems to be a little bit, if not a whole lot, out of line. That we ought to be sensitive to that why. Because we care about what God cares about. And purity is on the top of our list because it was blood bought by Jesus Christ himself. And on our side of the equation, throwing ourselves into those practices of grace, it ought to be reflected in our lives. So again, what's getting in the way? What's coming out of your mouth? And what's being reflected in your life? pray that it would be something that we see even here in these people of God so long ago. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that. I pray that even today, looking back on this climax of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the work that you did to bring them back to a place that they had lost because very much of what they had not done and what they had done instead. I pray, Lord, that seeing that we would understand what you've done for us in Jesus all the more and understand all the more the the, the city that we've been called to be citizens of. That you would grow in us the marks of that citizenship, of being your people and being a people of praise and a people of purity, that we would know community as you meant it to be. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.